0: see if it works well this morning we're gonna um, before we actually open the word together I'm going to be um, leading us in a time of prayer um, perhaps it goes without saying but it really does need to be said from time to time that we believe wholeheartedly as uh, leadership and as elders and pastors um, based upon what the Bible teaches that the reason we gather and the purpose for which we gather is to worship as believers and to be edified as believers. In other words, this gathering is for primarily the sake of those who call themselves disciples of Jesus. That's not meant to exclude those of you who might be visiting or interested, but not really identified as Christians. But this is what we believe the church is for, is for believers. So we tailor everything in the service, our singing, our songs, our messages, and our prayers, all for the family of God. Um, which is why we, uh, we take time to pray. Because that's what the family of God does. And um, so what we're going to do now before we come to the word is we're going to lift up some missionaries in prayer. For some reason, my my slides aren't working this morning. I had troubles last week too, but you know what? God still worked, and that's good. Um, But we have, um, uh, this is a uh, mission month where we're pushing towards our missions conference. And so we wanted to pray in that direction. And uh, in particular, we wanted to pray for our, our missionaries in Ecuador. We have three that we support. One's name is, oh, there it goes. Nice. <laughs> Love it when it works. Don't like it when it doesn't work. We have uh, Pastor Juan Carlos, who's um, just an amazing person. Um, who, who's, his work primarily is to plant churches in the jungle, to mentor pastors in the jungle. And right now, he's in the process of building a, a Bible institute in the, the town of Shandia. And Parkway, with one other church in Indiana, is supporting him in that endeavor to reach these unreached peoples of jungle of the jungle. So we want to pray that um, for continued opportunity to mentor pastors and plant new Bible school in the jungle. Um, we have another family sent from our church, the Ackermans, Eric and Carla Ackerman, and we just want to lift them up and pray for strength and fellowship and opportunities to share Christ with the youth in Quito. They work with street kids there. And then we have uh, Gina Delion who's also working and um, in charge of sending short-term mission groups down to the jungle and so forth. So we want to pray that she would receive encouragement, um, a community of faith, and uh, a long-term impact for the kingdom. So we're going to lift these, these um, missionaries, our, our family, up that they would make an impact. And so I would just want to ask if you're here with somebody, a friend or a family, if you would just, you can pick one or you can pray for all three, but maybe uh, gather together in a small group of two or three people and let's lift these, um, these missionaries up in prayer. If you're by yourself or you're visiting and you're uncomfortable with this, that's fine. But this is what the church is supposed to do. And so we're going to pray. So if you would find somebody and just lift these missionaries up in prayer, that would be fantastic. And then I will close this in a moment. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness. Thank you for your power. And we know that it is your aim. It is your plan, and it will be brought to completion to have Christ lifted up in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And one day, though we don't necessarily see it now, one day every knee will bow and confess him to be the king, the king who is full of righteousness and goodness. Love, mercy, who shares freely his reign with us. He's not selfish, but self-giving. And we pray that you would enable us, give us a passion, a heart, a conviction, an excitement for that plan, both in our prayer life and in our neighborhoods and and as we think of those who have left family, friends, and homes to go and, and proclaim his name to other places and other people. And we're thankful for the spirit that has moved people in our own congregation to, to leave their jobs and go. And we just lift them up and know that they need community. They need fellowship, encouragement, strength. And so we ask that you would provide it and that somehow today, this week, and this month, they would sense that their family back home has prayed for them and that your power was unleashed in their life. Father, I'm, I'm so deeply also thankful that we do not have to depend upon projectors, microphones, or sound systems for your grace to work. That our our God works in jungles, in huts without electricity, um, in worship houses where there is no sound system. And we just thank you for that. And we don't want to be guilty of relying upon technology for your work. And so I just ask that you would remind us today that Um, whatever change may come, comes from grace, and grace alone, and give us a heart to depend upon it right now, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're in a a third part in a series on new birth, found in John chapter 3, this will now be the third message, the first message was on verses 1 through 3, and the second one was uh, 4 through 8, and today we look at 9 through 15, if you want to turn there. We come just short, one verse short of John 3:16. Now, is that a travesty or what? Well, as I was preparing for this, um, a memory came to my mind that I think fits both the beginning and the end of this particular message. Um, I, I grew up in a in a home that um, that had to really work to make finances stretch. My parents made a conscious decision. Uh, both of them were public school teachers and would have done fine um, together if they had both went to, um, went to work, but they made a conscious choice that my mom would not work. And so two incomes became one ca- income for the sake of the family. And as a result, they had to kind of make things work. a um, Little money go a long ways. And one of the ways that, that my mother did that was that she would sew patches onto my, my jeans. Now, mind you, these were jeans that were um, made in the 70s, mid-late 70s. Do you remember all the vast array of little, of colors, um, of dirt brown, uh, forest green, lavender? And those were the kind of jeans that I wore. And... um, Looking back, they're not attractive. But anyway, one of the things about those particular denim jeans was that um, the knees would tear real easily, especially for those well, like me who was in uh, junior high at the time. And uh, in order for, for money to, to make it, my mom would get these pastures and she'd sew them onto the knees to to save her having to buy me a new pair of pants. Now, I look back with that with a sense of fondness. I think about that memory and right now I smile because I I know that my parents made hard decisions, and I love the simplicity of life. I love the fact that they never wanted to or showed us that they wanted to keep up with the Joneses, um, hence the patches on the knees. But I will say those patches were neither attractive because they weren't the same color, and everybody would know I had holes on my knees because there were these different colored patches on, on my knees. The other thing, in, in addition to the aesthetic uh, downside, was the fact that, they really didn't hold for very long. They'd eventually tear again, and then I'd have torn patches on my torn jeans. So they really never worked. And the reason I, that came to my mind is because there are some, when it comes to thinking about or viewing religion in general, or Christianity in particular, they often view it as or approach it like a patch. Um, We have brokenness, as Ron said this morning, all around us, and brokenness in relationships. um, People sense a hole in their own heart, something missing, um, depression, all kinds of different things. And, And oftentimes they will look for something to fix it. So they will almost, again, looking for a patch to cover the tear. And people will oftentimes, broken, look to religion in general or Christianity in particular to try and find a patch to sew over their tear. I don't know if you've seen the movie Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, it's based on a true story. Elizabeth Gilbert wrote the book, Eat, Pray, Love, and then Julia Roberts uh, was the main actress in the movie called Eat, Pray, Love. Now, um, there's nothing inappropriate in the movie. I don't know that I really cared for it, um, but it was educational because I think it expresses a real current in our culture. There's a lady who realizes midlife amidst what seems like a perfect life, a job, and a marriage, decides that there's a big, huge hole in her heart, which sends her on a journey to find the answer or to find herself. And so she leaves her marriage. She leaves her job. First place she goes is to Italy, where she discovers the art and the joy of food. That's the eat part. And then she goes from there to India, where she spends some time on an ashram, which is like a commune for um, people seeking enlightenment from a guru. She spends some time there, and through this teaching of the guru, she learns to pray, eat, pray, and then the last leg of her journey ends her in Bali, Indonesia, where she receives instruction instruction from yet another spiritual man, a ninth generation medicine man, who teaches her the importance of balance and through his instruction how to fall in love again. So her whole journey is trying to patch up this hole and she takes a little bit from Italy and she takes a little bit from the guru in in India and then she takes a little bit from the medicine man and and such it is. And it almost becomes like a a patchwork of trying to find and fix and fill holes. And that's how oftentimes people will approach religion. And that is um, a major current. But what's... At the heart of the current, in our culture, is a rather eclectic approach. Take a a little bit of Hinduism, take a little bit of Confucianism, um, add some Jesus, and then you kind of, with these different mixtures, create a quilt of your own understanding of yourself, the world. It's all this patchwork. And I'd be willing to bet, in this group this size, that there are probably people who are coming in who are hurt, and you're looking for something to fix. That hole, that tear, maybe you've tried other things and, and didn't work. And so you're going to come this morning and you're going to hopefully get a patch to sew up what's been torn. Now that is, that eclectic approach is, is, uh, is so much a part of our culture. People looking for patches, and blending. What I want to say to all of us and those here who might be looking for a patch Is that any approach to Jesus and Christianity, which springs out of him, that thinks of him or approaches him as a patch that you put upon your life, misunderstands him completely? Entirely. The thing is, when Jesus came, he didn't come to patch up the old life, that's not why he came. I hope everyone hears that. He actually came to put that old life to death. To kill it. And destroy it. Not patchwork. And out of that, out of the ashes of the old life, to create something new. A new heart. A new creation. From the ground up and from the inside out. Which is why he's not a patch he's not a fix he's not something to fill a hole on the on the backside he inevitably does that but that's not how we approach him he has come to put to death that old life and bring a new one and that's been the the main thrust of these this chapter and these messages in what jesus has termed the the new birth, or being born again, or more particularly accurately, born from above, a new life that originates. He comes to give something new that he does. And as we've looked, just to recap, for those of you who weren't here the last couple of weeks, he's taught us three things about this new birth in a conversation with a band by the name of Nicodemus. One is that you really can't get who Jesus is unless you're born again that you can't enter the kingdom without being born again, which is a way of saying entering into God's saving life. The the third is that this new birth is a sovereign work. The spirit comes in and blows fresh air into the spirit of a man, and he comes to life. It's the sovereign work. He does it. And then when he does it, the fourth thing is it, it causes an effect. It's what changes people, and it has changes in our attitudes and actions and, and joy and peace and love and compassion. It, is a, it changes us from the inside out and you see the effects. Well, I want to add a, a fifth one on here, and that is how? How does one experience new life? How is one born from above? An important question. And here Jesus is going to tie that how question to his own work. If you've been wondering in the last two messages, okay, where's the work of Jesus in this new birth idea? Well, all I have to say is, you know, you need to wait for it because it's coming right now, how he ties it to his own work. This is what he, what the gospel writer writes beginning in verse nine. We see Nicodemus asks the last question of the chapter. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? It's a question of how. Now, how? I understand the logic of it. How? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, then how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now the heart of what I want to get to is the question of how is one born again? How is it made possible to start over again with a new beginning? The answer isn't found till verse 14 and 15. But in light of where we are as a culture, I think it's important to just pause and look at the verses before it. Because in his response to this man by the name of Nicodemus, Jesus asserts and affirms his own superiority as the teacher and the revealer of who God is. Again, he is having a conversation with a man who has a reputation for being the teacher of Israel but you're quickly going to discern the superiority of Jesus' teaching. The initial question, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, and here there is a mild rebuke. Because he says, are you the teacher, the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? The clear implication is that he should have understood what Jesus is talking about. Because embedded in the Old Testament, one of which, one passage Ron read from Ezekiel 36, he should have understand that it was prophesied that there would be this event, this time in which God would give a new heart to his people. New heart. He would pour out his spirit on people. A new creation would burst forth as a result of God doing this thing. And Jesus is basically saying, you, you You being the teacher of Israel, so versed in the Old Testament, and presumably so knowledgeable about God, you should have understood this. Which just goes to show that a person can have a lot of knowledge and miss what's vital and crucial, and that is understanding. So Jesus is in a position of correction here. He's correcting the teacher of Israel. Because he gets it. Jesus understands, but not because he's simply smarter than Nicodemus. Now, granted, Jesus is smarter than Nicodemus. But the reason he understands is by nature of who he is and where he comes from. Because he pushes back, as you look forward, in verse 11, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, have, you do not receive our testimony. Now, you'll notice the words know, understand, see, all of which are knowledge words permeate this passage. And Track with me here because I'm trying to show and elevate and exalt Jesus as the place of the revealer of God. And then I'll bring its point in a moment. Is that when Nicodemus first comes to Jesus, some of the first words he says, first words out of his mouth are, We know that you're a teacher sent from God. You hear the, We know something. Of course, as the conversation unfolds, you realize he really doesn't know. Now, Jesus, in this verse, uses the exact same words, and he says to this man, Nicodemus, who came and said, We know. And he says to him, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Speaking in the plural, we. Who's there with Jesus that he's saying we? I don't think it's the disciples because they didn't really get who he was yet either. But I think what he's doing in in asserting and pushing back to this man Nicodemus is aligning himself with his father in heaven. He's aligning himself with heaven itself. Because we find elsewhere in the Gospel of John that the Father testifies to who the Son is through his work. So if you reject the work, you reject the testimony from the Father as to who Jesus is. So I think what it, in essence what he's saying here is listen, you who said we know something, listen, we know something too. Only it's from a divine orientation. See, Nicodemus didn't have an, a clue or a fathom who he was talking to. Now, if that was unclear, he starts with a rebuke, and then he goes on to say, we know, then he makes it explicitly clear in verse 13. Because he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. That is an amazing statement right there that separates Jesus from everybody else. What he says here is that no one, that is all-inclusive, no one has ascended into the place where God dwells. No one except, and here's the singular exception, he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus' way of talking about himself. So no human in history... Maybe they go by the name prophet, philosopher, religious teacher, guru, has ever ascended into the very place where God dwells. No one has first-hand knowledge of God, first-hand knowledge of the place that he dwells. No one. But his point, there is one, and that's Jesus. He has descended because that is where his home is. That is where his origin is. The son of man's family is his father. And he comes down with first-hand information, perfect knowledge of his father and perfect knowledge of where he dwells. And he's the only one that has that perfect first-hand understanding of the Lord. In a manner of speaking, Jesus is God's authorized autobiography sent to earth. He is not simply, to put it another way, he is not simply a teacher of teachers. He is the teacher. He's not simply a bearer of revelation. He is the revealer and is revelation. That places him in a category and class all by himself and far above every other teaching, every other philosophy, and every other truth claim. And some might think, well, that's kind of arrogant. Well, he's the one who says it. No one has ascended except the Son of Man who has descended, which places his teaching in a place far above any other teaching. Now, that, I believe, has massive implication, especially for a world in which there are so many competing voices, not just competing, but we live in a culture which which wants to relativize all truth claims, as if the teaching of Jesus is on the same level as the teaching of the Quran or the teaching of the Gita. According to the words of Jesus, that simply won't fly. That's being dishonest with what Jesus says himself. There's no one who's ascended, none of those just mentioned, Only one has come down. That means for the Christian who believes this, that the truth is found in Christ and his teaching, then every other truth claim and every other philosophy must be measured, scrutinized, evaluated, and tested based upon the authoritative word of Christ. And I'll tell you, for, for college students going away and being influenced by university professors who say one thing or reading books that say another thing or watching a particular show and, and being influenced by that voice, we have to be able to hold this near and dear to our heart that his word is above all words. So I, I, that wasn't my main point, but I, I just believe it's so important for us to recognize that the teachings of Christ that define who we are and reality, and worldview, and what's going to happen? Because he is the authoritative revealer of God, descending, the only one who has. Everything else is, is man-based. It's either based upon the accumulation of, of human wisdom, or it is discovery into human experience. Even the Old Testament prophets were merely vessels of revelation. Jesus is revelation himself. Anyway, back to his main point. That makes him an authoritative teacher on this thing called new birth and new creation. He's speaking as one who knows firsthand. So back to the question, how? Want to begin again? New life? Start over with a new existence? How? How can these things be is the initial question. And now comes the answer in verse 14. It says, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Excuse me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so uh, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, verse 14, Jesus draws an analogy from the Old Testament. Some would call it a typology, but a typology is just a prophetic analogy, if you care. It's, It's basically looking back in the Old Testament, saying, this is what it's like. And he goes back to a very peculiar story in which Moses and the people of Israel are out in the wilderness, and they sin against the Lord. And here's the story. It's it's worth reading. Numbers 21, verse 5. It says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, and here's what they spoke. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? where there is no food and no water, and we loathe. I love that word, colorful word. We loathe this worthless food. God's given them food, and they're lamenting and loathing the gift. So, verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents, that means poisonous serpents, among the people. And they bit the people so that, they, that many people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that and he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, the Lord tells him to do something very interesting, something ludicrous, from a human vantage point, completely foolish. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent. Let me reread that. He would look at the bronze serpent and live. Logic is pretty easy. People are ungrateful, sin against the Lord. The Lord sends snakes. People start dying. People start crying out to the Lord, save us. The Lord gives instruction. All right, Moses, make a serpent out of bronze. Stick it on a pole and hold it high in the air so people can see it. And then tell the people to look at it. To look at it. Now, that runs so contrary to our inner survival instinct. Let's imagine for a moment that we have a Raiders of the Lost Ark moment this morning. And underneath the doors, rattlesnakes start slithering in through the vents and over the walls. Aside from scream and panic, what would we do? Well, some of you would get smart and hop up on your chairs hoping they'd slither underneath you, couldn't climb. Others of you, brave men, would probably pick up a chair and start to throw it or, or wave it and try and crush the heads of the serpents. Others would get their cell phones on top of their chairs and call either the fire department, the police department, or the emergency hotline at Clark Pest Control. (laughs) In short, we instinctively would try to save ourselves. Got to do something about it. We have to do something about it. God advises them to do precisely the opposite. Stop And look, it is the most counterintuitive, unproductive, most inefficient means of fighting off serpents. But that's what he instructs them to do. And the reason why is he's requiring of them a simple but pure faith in what he says. Look, trust my word and simply look at the stupid bronze serpent on top of a pole and I will save you. You will live. Look, and you shall live. That's his instruction. And the people who do, they stop trying. They stop trying to defend themselves and take out the snakes. They look, and they live at the serpent on a pole lifted up. Well, Jesus tells us that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and those who trusted and looked to it were saved and had life, Here's the analogy. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Looking and life. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. That word lifted up, it's one word in the original, translated two words. It only happens four times in the Gospel of John. And every time, it weds two things together. Crucifixion and exaltation. So here it is. So must the Son of Man be lifted up on a stick, on a tree, on a piece of wood, a cross. He will be lifted up and through it exalted to the highest place. And the point is that those who look surrender their survival instinct to save themselves and look to the Son of Man lifted up who gave his life in death for the sake of his people, resurrected and exalted. As you look, you live. So what he's saying here is that the epicenter of how new life and new creation happens is by looking to the Son lifted up, crucified, raised and exalted. And as we do, life is breathed in. That life is both the cause and the effect of looking to the Son of Man. Lifted up, crucified, died for his people, raised and exalted. That goes against our fallen human nature. We want to try and we want to do. And God says you need to look. Believe my words that life is unleashed in my son's death. That's a big irony is that God is, lifts up his son, he dies, and as we look, we live. And it, what he requires of us is that kind of simple and pure faith that says, I believe that. And I look to the son, lifted up, crucified, raised, and exalted. And then we live. It's as if, my friends, we like to show off things by at night at least by shining a big light on them. You know, Washington Monument lights up the Washington sky because they cast a huge light on it. Same thing with the White House, same thing with the Capitol, same thing with Big Ben in London. Put the big old light on it so you can see it, it's a way of showing off. I believe that there's one light that's been shining from before the foundation of the world. And that light was shined through the prophets and through the apostles on one thing. One thing that the God of creation wanted everyone to see, and that is at the center of history, all light shining at this most spectacular event of all times. And that is the Son of Man lifted up, crucified for sinners. Raised, exalted, and coming again to finish what he started. That's central. All eyes are to see. It is so central that it is tragic. It is wonderful. It is a stumbling stone. It is life. It is a miracle. It is nothing less than God's Shining on the sun, the centerpiece of history. And what he tells everyone in the message, singular message of the entire Bible is look to the sun and you will live. So counterintuitive, so counter our fa- fallen survival instinct, the rest of the world wants to save itself by running around and sowing patches taken from here and there. Which never does anything for the heart of never renewal and new creation new beginnings but that's what we get when we look to the sun a new beginning a new birth that's how it happens he places this whole new life given by the spirit on his own death now i believe that that truth has enormous implication for us as believers one of them is how we think of outreach and how we expand god's kingdom Um, in addition to the necessary ministries of compassion and showing tangible love, which Ron talked about earlier, is the need for us to constantly make it our simple aim to lift up the Son of Man, crucified, resurrected, and exalted in our speech. I know it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse. Let me beat it one more time. If there is no verbal proclamation and the lifting up of the son, the crucified one for his people, raised and exalted and coming again, there is no new life that will come. The world must not be allowed to silence what gives life, and that is the gospel. The second implication has to do with us. Because I can, I can imagine someone saying, well, you know, this whole message, Dan, seems like it fits the unbeliever, but we're in the believer, you know, you've got to look to Christ. And, I mean, I did that. I, I heard the gospel, and I looked to the cross and realized I was forgiven. That's God's love. And, and that's for people at the beginning of the Christian life, to which I would say, never. Just as last week, you don't begin in the spirit and then continue in the flesh. It begins with the spirit, carried in the spirit, so... Comes also that focus. As we begin the Christian life by looking to the cross, the Son of Man lifted up, crucified, res- uh, resurrected, and exalted, so we continue to grow and strengthen our life as we look to Him. The implication is we continue to look to Him. And as we do, then the change comes, and, and, and then growth comes. I mean, that's nothing new. This is what Paul wrote in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he says, when, and we all with unveiled faces, so now we can see, right? Beholding, there's a sight word. The glory of the Lord, glory of the Lord who is Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as we look, we're changed. We like to move because of that natural fallen human instinct right to the doing and placing priority on doing and trying and take our focus off what's primary and wonder why things backfire because we've gotten the cart before the horse. The transforming takes place from the beholding. The mandate of the Christian life from beginning to end is look to the sun and look to the sun and look to the sun. And as He is your consuming focus, you will change. You will be transformed. You will love people more. You will grow in obedience. You will grow in faithfulness. That's what I want. That's what I hope you want, and I want you to grow. But if you find yourself stuck in your Christian life, pedaling, not going anywhere, like you're driving a bike in a swamp, perhaps it's because you focused more on change than Christ. Perhaps it's because you focused more on growth than on God. God. You want to grow in the love of God? Then you look to the sun. You want to grow in the grace of God? Then look to the sun. You want to grow in power? Look to the sun. You want to grow in wisdom? Look to the sun. You want to live? Look to the sun. That is our mandate, church, is... To say one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the presence of Christ all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of Christ and inquire in his holy presence. My friends, the way we grow, the way we move, where we find power is the same place, and it's quite simple. Look to the Son, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and increase our faith, our faith in Christ, and decrease our confidence in self. That all true wisdom, power, and life are derivative, and they come from a connection with Christ, a focus on Christ, and abiding union with Christ. Lord, we desire to grow, but I know oftentimes we focus in the wrong direction and find ourselves pedaling backwards. So will you give us the heart, strength, and faith, the grace to keep our eyes riveted on Jesus and pour out your grace and fresh wind in our lives as we do in Christ's name.